Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is James Coleman, who's a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where he focuses on energy policy, including energy commodity, transport, and trade and markets regulation. He's also the Robert Story Distinguished Faculty Fellow and a professor of law at Southern Methodist University, where he specializes in energy trade and North American environmental and energy regulation. Before joining SMU, he taught at the University of Calgary's Law and Business Schools and Harvard Law School. Um, And while working for Sidley Austin, his environmental and appellate practice focused on energy production and environmental impact assessments. Earlier, he was a clerk with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Uh, Thanks for joining us on Banter, James. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, We're glad to have you, James. And and I was going to say, along with our scholars in the who focus on Eastern Europe and Russia and, and Ukraine, you are kind of the man of the hour because energy is all we talk about now and oil prices and gasoline prices. And so I just wanted to start off with a just a very straightforward question, which is if you were if you were in charge, what would you do to, to, to protect American consumers from the um, from the downside of higher gas prices? Well, unfortunately, when you are in a crisis, uh, there's often no easy solutions and no quick solutions. So there were a number of things that we could have done uh, years ago to address this. And, more, you know, a lot of things we could have done 12 months ago to address this, but there's very little we can do now. Now, with that said, I do think that releasing some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try and lower oil and thus gasoline prices in the United States makes sense if it was accompanied by a promise to purchase oil in the future. And we've had some indications that that is what the administration says it's going to do, but it would be a lot better if they were actually purchasing uh, futures contracts for oil in the future because basically what that would do is give oil and gas producers some assurance that there were going to be demand and a lot of continuing demand for oil and gas, and hopefully that would help jumpstart uh, domestic production a little bit. But th- these, all these steps are uh, really kind of band-aids on a bigger uh, problem, which is energy insecurity that we're facing here in the United States, but even more in uh, Europe and other places around the world. Now, you know, I can remember only, it seems like only three years ago or four years ago, um, or maybe yesterday, uh, people were celebrating the fact that the United States had achieved energy independence. And um, is that not true? Did we, should we not have celebrated it? It didn't happen? Well, I, I think it's important to understand what you mean by energy independence. I don't think it's a very helpful term, but I think what people mean by that is that we produce a lot of energy. We produce more oil and gas than we use. And that's true, that remains true today. And the advantage of that is that when 
oil and gas prices go up for consumers, uh, that's bad, of course, for consumers, and it'd be bad for parts of our economy. But at the same time, our oil and gas producers get a boost from that. So that uh, boost to our oil and gas producers and the tax revenue that comes in from the energy industry, et cetera, sort of offsets the harm to consumers. So there can still be a lot of there can still be a lot of dislocations, a lot of harm involved, but we have a relatively balanced energy system. And so that is true. Now, if what people I think often people hear that word energy independence and they think, okay, we don't have to worry about what happens to energy prices around the world anymore. And that's not what it means. And that's never the case, right? Anytime that the great thing about oil is because it contains so much energy in such a small package, it's so energy dense. If there's a shortage anywhere in the world, we can send oil there to help meet it. And that means that we have smoother energy supplies. That means there's a more stable supply of energy to the world system. But of course it means if there's a shortage or increased demand anywhere in the world, it has an impact on us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and um, are, is, is, during this immediate crisis right now, how quickly, you, you address this issue with, after my first question, which, mean, which seemed to indicate that it can't be turned around that fast. But how quickly can American energy producers ramp up production? Can they do it overnight? Does it take a year? Does it take six months? What, what, what happens there with oil and gas producers when prices rise? Are they able to, to increase production, increase su- supply? Well, American producers are able to ramp up oil and gas production uh, from new wells faster than any other producers in the world. If you go back to uh, just a couple years ago, we had the fastest oil and gas boom that has ever happened in the history of the world, uh, and that took place right here with American Shale. Now, with that said, you know that's about what two million barrels a day uh, in over the course of a year and there was a lot of you know investment before that laying the groundwork for that so yes they can ramp up production in a matter of months and significantly in a matter of a year or two but that obviously isn't you know an immediate uh, release of oil onto the market to match the kind of immediate fall off that you've had as a result of the, the you know, this uh, russia and ukraine yeah, I'm going to press you a little bit on that because, you know, your focus is on the regulatory and sort of government um, atmosphere uh, for oil and gas producers. And are you saying that whatever heart, bad things there are in the American regulatory environment, um, they're, they're worse in Mexico or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia because we can ramp up faster than they can? Uh, no, I, I don't think the problems in many other countries are as much regulatory as the lack of uh, the technology and just the yeah. large liquid markets with you know hundreds and hundreds of oil and gas companies, oil field services companies, etc. That can ramp that up. So you know it, it's not it's not purely a matter of the resource and the regulation there's also just the general business market and you can see that across the you know the eagle ford shale which extends through south texas it extends into northern mexico but they haven't been able to produce there in the burgos basin uh anything remotely like that because they simply don't have the number of companies driving 
uh, extraction prices down and leading to large efficient markets like we have here in the United States. And yeah, I think it's also important to understand that there are areas where uh, there isn't as much uh, regulation or federal regulation slowing things down. So if you're developing on private land in, mm-hmm. in Texas with just an intrastate pipeline in Texas, you're less worried about you know, federal regulation slowing that process down. On the other hand, if you're, de- if you're developing across the border in New Mexico and you're on federal land and you need an interstate natural gas pipeline uh, to get that to markets, all of a sudden there is a lot more federal regulation. Maybe you can ramp up a little bit using the existing infrastructure, but eventually you're going to need new infrastructure. And we know that the process for building new infrastructure has just gotten slower and slower over the past decades. One last follow-up on that one. When you say that the process for building new infrastructure has gotten slower and slower over the decades, that, 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 that does refer to the regulatory and environmental impact statement environment, right? Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. So, we've, so if you're building a you know, big federal project, you're going to need, it's called an environmental impact statement under the National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, that's typically required for an interstate natural gas pipeline. That would be uh, that you know historically took a couple years. It extended to three years over the course of the Obama administration. Extended to over five years, and so now you might be waiting over five years just for your environmental review to be finished before you can start building. And that's if you don't get sued. Okay, but 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 that was that. So you you went to the question I was going to ask: is is there's a perception if you're around some people in Washington that. That that regulatory heavy hand, that 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 you know damp cloth slowing everything down, um, is able to be turned on and off depending on who's president. And so, it, did it? You you said it got longer, it got longer under Obama, and then you you jumped to the president and said that's the way it is. Did it get better in the four years under Trump, and now it's got worse already under Biden, or is this a long term trend that neither Trump nor Biden can do or has done anything about? So I would say it's mostly a long-term trend, uh, and I'll t- talk about an exception in a second. But it's but if you were if you're looking at those interstate natural gas pipelines that require an environmental impact statement, yeah, it's been a uh, it has been a long process, and the Trump administration did things to try and speed it up in, in terms of issuing uh, reforms of uh, the regulations under the National Environmental Policy Act. But fundamentally, those didn't really change things. And often when they tried to speed things up, they ended up losing cases in court and having uh, permits, uh, basically permits vacated and holding up projects. And so there's not really a quick way around it without congressional action to speed up permitting. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll get some of that. I mean, there is seems to be increasing interest on a bipartisan basis in speeding up infrastructure, especially to spur the kind of, you know, cleaner energy from natural gas and renewables. But, um, and so maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get that. But so far that has just got longer and longer. And that's true under uh, President Trump as well. I will say there are aspects that have gotten slower and worse under the Biden administration. The principal one is the, you know, permitting on federal lands. So, you know, that a lot of that new production that's happening in New Mexico, New Mexico has just become the second biggest oil producing uh, state in the country after Texas. Um, that 
some of that, uh, a lot of that production is on federal lands. And the Biden administration, um, well, Biden, when he was in, during the campaign, promised to end all drilling on federal lands, even mm-hmm. for people who had already paid for their leases. Uh, when he got into office, he you know, just put in a pause for 60 days and then a longer pause for leasing. But there's no question that he slowed down the pace of granting um, of granting permits for drilling on federal land. So that part has gotten worse. Uh, Phoebe's going to ask a question about the Keystone Pipeline in a minute, but just since you mentioned that and drilling on federal lands, the, the rationale for that, I presume, is uh, driven by climate policy. And I want to show that we're going to cut off this source of energy. Maybe I'm wrong, but, but do you see that as a, as, do you at least acknowledge, or is do you acknowledge that there's, there's a trade-off there, that if you allow drilling on federal lands, that's going to lead to um, a further uh, erosion of our of our ability to meet our climate change goals or, or climate change objectives? Well, let's say that it's a very complicated question because one issue is, well, if we don't produce it here, will it be produced elsewhere? And if that oil is produced elsewhere, will it have higher emissions? My general, if if I had, and those questions are actually, I've studied those questions as a scientific matter. It's very difficult to estimate. Um, but my guess is, yes, probably if you produce more oil and gas, that probably lowers global prices and as a result you do have um you, that means slightly more greenhouse gas emissions now by the same but of course lower energy prices is what we should want and if we were trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, without raising energy prices too much the last thing we would be doing is stopping drilling and federal lands there's a lot of much more efficient ways to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's just an extremely inefficient and we're finding very costly to the entire world way to try Mm -hmm. and lower greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Um, It seems like there's been uh, increasingly a divide in how uh, policymakers want to respond to the Ukraine energy crisis um, between either sourcing more energy domestically or, you know, the Biden administration and more Democratic lawmakers pushing to turn to renewable sources, which kind of they want to do anyway, and are describing this as the perfect opening. And one of the things I thought was very interesting in your recent op-eds has been that you kind of describe how the oversight of the fossil fuel industry is actually what's impeding the development of some of the more renewable sources. Um, And I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. So could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, there's nothing wrong with developing more renewable energy sources, but what I think often what gets lost is people say, well, we want to have a transition, and the part of the transition that they've started with is trying to restrain oil and gas sources rather than trying to boost these other energy sources. Mm-hmm. And the way that's been most successful in restraining those oil and gas sources is slowing down permitting. So if you think about the big, you know, environmental victories or what are perceived as environmental victories over the past decades, a lot of it has been about stopping pipeline projects, stopping Keystone XL, which was going to carry oil, stopping the Constitution pipeline, which was going to carry natural gas to the East Coast, Uh, you know, stopping the uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, another natural gas pipeline. And so, uh, but the way that those are stopped is typically by making permitting processes 
take longer. It's by challenging, asking for more work in the environmental review, in the environmental impact statement, uh, more re review for any water crossing, etc. And I think the bad impact that these have had is that those legal standards that apply for environmental review or water crossings, etc., also apply to renewable power lines for renewable energy. And we've seen at the same time them those precedents be used to stop new projects that were supposed to bring hydropower from Canada down into uh, the into the northeast to try and stop um, new power line projects to bring wind power from the Midwest to uh, to uh, sources further east. So they've been so basically instead of figuring out how to build these new cleaner sources, we've actually been more just figuring out ways to stop all energy sources, mm -hmm. and we're seeing. We're seeing some of the results. Um, and I would say also, by the way, it's important to understand that newer, cleaner sources are much more dependent on new infrastructure that requires permits than old sources. I mean, we already have a lot of oil pipelines. And even if you didn't ever have a new oil pipeline built, you have the ability to transport oil by barge, by ship, by rail, by truck. By contrast, think about renewable energy. The only way it can get to market is with that long-distance linear infrastructure carrying the wind power from where it's produced to the cities where it's needed. If it doesn't have those power lines built, it's simply uh, that those new renewable power sources simply will not be built. Why didn't anyone think to make those regulatory requirements less burdensome? Because you're trying to favor the, the less uh, damaging sources, types of energy. Well, I think there has been some interest. If you look, actually, the renewable energy industry largely supported the Trump era reforms of the National Environmental Policy Act because they also they know they need those um, those uh, they need those permits. Right. But uh, but you know, really, the the Biden administration clearly seems conflicted on this because you know one of the first things that they did when they came into office is said, okay, we're rolling back those reforms made by the Trump administration. And that's because, you know, they have in their coalition, yeah, they have some renewable energy producers, but they have a lot of other groups that their uh, their number one priority is increasing environmental review of all projects. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, if you talk to those environmental groups, there, I mean, there'd be a couple of perspectives. You'd have local environmental groups that would say, well, you know, I, I I care about my local habitat, local birds, et cetera, and so I don't want these projects built here. But even if you talk to the national groups, some of them would say, well, maybe we don't need so much energy, right? They would say, we think the world can get by with less energy, and we should prioritize environmental review over these new sources of energy. Um, one more question about international markets. What? Just explain to me, what is going on with the Biden administration running down to Venezuela and, and trying to do a deal there? What Could you just... Tell us the elementary facts of that or what that's about or how that fits with their strategy. Well, at a certain point, it gets a little bit absurd. So, so the, it, it's true. Venezuela has been historically one of our most important oil producers. And, but you know, there's been a humanitarian tragedy over the past uh, 10 years in Venezuela. And their oil industry, along with all of their economy, has really just been uh, run into the ground. And, um, and so they really aren't producing very much oil. So, you know, if we could go back to 10, 15 years ago, well, maybe they could produce more oil 
it's the kind of heavy sour oil that sometimes we get from Russia, so maybe that would be particularly beneficial. But the problem is their oil industry has been so run down in the meantime that even if we were to drop the sanctions on them, they would, uh, they would, you know, it would take years to repair that industry and for it to ramp back up. So it's not even clear how it would work. Of course, it looks very silly when, you know, in some ways uh, the administration has done a lot that has held up the American oil and gas mm-hmm. industry to then go, uh, you know, begging Venezuela for uh, for more oil and gas. And so largely I would say, yeah, their, their diplomatic efforts on uh, oil and gas production, um, you know, are not, uh, have, have not appeared to be well calibrated. Yeah. Do you think we could be at kind of a turning point for people actually caring about supply chains and where these things are sourced from? Because I I mean, this, you know, was a huge topic of conversation around China and COVID. Um, And then, you know, the Ukraine-Russia fight has just so changed public opinion about um, what sacrifices we're willing to make um, for disengaging from regimes that we consider evil or hostile. Um, And so do you think in the face of that, there is kind of a public opinion case to be made for sourcing that domestically? Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. But it, it's also interesting because we, you know, in oil and gas, we're about as secure as it can get. I mean, we are the number one producer by far of oil. We're the number one producer by far of natural gas. We are the, and, and to be fair, I mean, yes, gasoline prices have doubled. That's bad. But if you look at, uh, you know, if you look at other energy sources, look at electricity prices in uh, Europe, which have gone up by 10 times. Look at natural gas prices, which have gone up by 10 times. I mean, we are not, we, as a result of our oil and gas production, we have some huge benefits. And in fact, you know, it would be, um, you know, so you might think, well, we should rely on those sources that we have here. I mean, one interesting thing about, uh, you know, I favor diversifying our energy system, building these new um new cleaner sources but it's just a reality like if you want to build a lot of electric vehicles that means depending on mineral supply chains that are not just in the united states in fact we're not one of the major producers of you know most of those um most of those minerals we're not even in the top 10 even though we're we're number one for oil and gas but we're not in the top 10 for those uh you know top clean energy minerals and uh you know we're incredibly vulnerable to supply chain disruptions there i mean i encourage any of you want to order you know if you want to order a uh you know f-150 lightning electric vehicle like you know get ready to wait three years right and and if you're looking at what's happened i mean you know we're we're of course upset that gasoline prices have doubled but if you look at the cost of the components to build a battery for any one of these new electric vehicles, they've gone up by five or six times. And that's money that's not going to US producers, that's going to producers around the world. So, you know, in terms of, I mean, I think it's important to understand, unfortunately, like, there's a lot of problems with oil, like in terms of the the pollution when it burns. But in terms of security, yeah. there is no, no energy source that will ever be as secure as oil. Mm-hmm. And oil is in, We are very fortunate in the United States that we have these huge supplies of um, domestic production. And, you know, you can we can diversify without um, without, you know, endangering that energy security. In some ways, it can be a benefit because if oil prices rise, maybe one of those other prices stays down. But um, but there's just no replacement for oil in terms of its energy security because it's so uh, energy dense, so key, so easy to transport, so easy um, and so easy to store. 
So the, you, you really made the great case, which is another sign of America's strength, that, that we have a big comparative advantage over other countries because of that, uh, our ability to produce oil and gas. And, and I, I, uh, I like that. I think that protects our consumers. It protects our businesses. It, it protects our wallets and our, all kinds of things. And I'm comfortable with that. Um, but it does raise the issue about Europe. And, Russia, and it's, its dependency on Russia. Um, they're not in the same position we are in. And what, looking long term, given what's going on in, in the Ukraine, uh, I mean, will Europe be able, how, how long will Europe be able to, to be strong in the face of, of, of the sanctions against Russians, Russia, Russia's oil production or the interruptions of Russia's oil production and gas delivery to, to their markets? It's a great question, and it's clear that Europe is going to need transformative change to have anything like energy security. It's important to also remember that Europe used to produce um, a lot of the natural gas that it needed. In fact, all of it. It didn't used to be dependent on Russia, but uh, European production has tailed off a little bit. We've had uh, more dependence. Uh, as we move to a more renewable heavy system, you know, the one thing we know about renewables, of course, is that you know there's no sun, there's no sun at night, and yeah. there's often no wind. Yeah. And so, and so, basically, you need to have an energy system. Um, you can't count on the renewables ever to provide energy. They save a lot of fuel for you. And so that means you don't have to run your natural gas plants as often. You don't have to run your coal plants as often. And that's great. That can save you money. But in terms – and also reduce carbon emissions. But it, but you have to have that system ready to go. And the typical system that's best uh, positioned to kind of ramp up and down to um, – just use when you need it is natural gas. And so we've seen rising natural gas production uh, dependence around the world in places that uh, install more renewables. So, um, so Europe, for a variety of reasons, has just over the last couple of decades grown incredibly dependent on Russia. They need to be searching all other sources of natural gas. I mean, it is truly an emergency when you talk about electricity prices rising 10 times yeah. natural gas prices for heating uh, rising 10 times that is that is an absolute emergency you need to address it with all all possible ways so one is bringing the liquefied natural gas from the united states the Biden administration just promised basically 50 percent uh, increase in u.s lng all dedicated to going to uh, Europe, and you know that will help a little bit, but they need to find even more gas than that. Um, you're going to want them to do everything they can to promote conservation. If I mean, with these new atrocities in Ukraine, it may be that Europe does actually impose sanctions on Russian gas or cut off Russian gas. If it does that, it may need something that looks very much like wartime controls on natural gas use, right? I mean, it could you know, include even temperature controls in your house. Can't have it above a certain yeah. uh, temperature. It could be really, it could be really severe. Um, and um, and they need to, you know, develop alternate methods of, uh, you know, things like other things that can save. Germany energy. might turn the nuclear power plants back on. Right. Well, yeah, we would hope so. We would yeah, hope so. Yeah, but, yeah. but 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 you know, maybe but maybe uh, but. 
you know, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, there's going to be just a lot of very difficult choices. I saw the UK today just said it might uh, massively invest in new nuclear plants, and that would, you know, that would help. But, um, you know, again, there's no really uh, short-term easy solutions. Well, it, 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 it does raise the issue of whether the pressure on, on energy in Europe is so great that their desire to help Ukraine um, and 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 get Putin out of Ukraine might also get to be even greater. So it may maybe that's the solution is just get Russia to act like a civilized nation again. Um, um, but maybe that's too much to ask for, too much to hope for. Well, I mean, look, I'm not a I'm not a uh, not a military strategist, yeah, but right. let me but let, but let me uh, say that I'm not super hopeful yeah, in the near right. term yeah. because. Because, I mean, there are some pretty irreconcilable issues that are going to continue in, in Ukraine, which is, you know, unless, unless Russia is willing to go back to pre-2014 borders, um, then how is that conflict going to be resolved? Why won't sanctions stay in place? And why, you know, I'm not even sure uh, politically whether Ukraine could, um, you know, it would be politically feasible after all that's happened for it to give up a significant chunk of territory yeah. to Russia. So I think it's, I mean, I think there are some, that those negotiations are going to be very hard to resolve in a way that satisfies all parties in a way that gets rid of sanctions. And even if, even if sanctions were dropped, you know, even if we get this resolved in the next month and sanctions were dropped, keep in mind that Western oil companies have already pulled out yeah. uh, their joint ventures with uh, Russia. And Russia, you know, as I said, again, American technology, American companies are what make modern oil and gas production possible. Uh, if Russia was left to its own companies, there's no way that it would be able to keep its production at the same level. We're already seeing its production uh, stop, back up, etc. And that could be catastrophic yeah. for future energy supplies. I mean, the only time this has happened before, which was during the collapse of the Soviet Union, it really took, I mean, it really took up until the last, uh, you know, decade and it took 20 years to recover from because once your oil and gas um once your oil and gas uh network really shuts down you have to shut in wells it takes a long time to recover them particularly if you don't have expertise to do so and a lot of the american oil field service companies that have been operating there and international ones as well have pulled out as well so i don't know i i, I think we're dealing with a long-term energy shortage here well that's very that's very that's not, that's not a very optimistic thing, but it's a, it's a blue Monday here in Washington. But let me just ask you, getting back to the area where you really are, you know, the best and in the nation. I'm not saying you aren't in in evaluating the geopolitical issues, but but if there, what is the one regulatory antitrust um, policy in the United States that you are that you wish uh, could be reformed or changed in a way? to allow us to um, produce energy in a, in a more efficient way without damaging the climate? Or, I mean, what, what is the one thing that is really the, the biggest problem as far as you're concerned? For me, it's permitting. It just permitting. takes too long to build anything in the United States. And that's, you know, that's true of infrastructure in general. I mean, 
So the, the principal environmental review law in the United States is the National Environmental Policy Act. People typically call it NEPA, N-E-P-A. Uh, and you know, it was adopted because in, in 1970, because at that time, you know, there were lots of federal projects, federal highways that were built without any consideration. You know, my, my grandmother grew up in uh, an African neighborhood, uh, African-American neighborhood in St. Paul, where that was just destroyed when the interstate came through. And that's a story that was in so many cities around the U.S. So there's no question we needed environmental review at that time. But what's happened now is we've gone to the opposite extreme where we have, you know, as I said, more than five years of review on these environmental, uh, on these uh, new energy infrastructure projects. And it's holding up all the infrastructure projects we need around the United States, you know, including, as I said, especially those, um, you know, cleaner energy sources. Because, you know, coal and oil built the modern world because they're easy to transport and store. But those newer energy sources like natural gas that burn so much cleaner or renewable energy, they depend on power lines and pipelines to get to market. So you have to have those permitted. So I would have I would have Congress pass new legislation that just said that courts can no longer uh, invalidate permits after there's been a final environmental impact statement and three years of review. If the court wants to order the government to go back and do more environmental review, that's fine, but the project has to be able to go ahead. Because, you know, you can think about any investor. If you're looking at a project and you have to put down, you know, billions of dollars and you know, you know, you may not even get your environmental approval for six, seven years, and then after that, you're going to be going through a lawsuit for two, three, five years. I mean, there's just no way that you're going to make that kind of investment. It's raising the cost of energy for all of us and making it hard to transition to any cleaner energy source. I mean, one example I often give of this is like if you had a reasonable permitting system, you would be retiring well, you know, not not only would you be building these new cleaner sources, but you would have you know new oil and gas pipelines so you could retire the old ones. Um, in fact, you know the start of the big national uh, pipeline system is from World War II. We had you know we had German U-boats sinking uh, oil tankers on the East Coast, and so we built pipelines as an emergency matter to take oil from Texas to to the East Coast. All of those oil and gas pipelines that we built in months during World War II and our emergency are still in service. Yeah. And that's, you know, we are just, we just do not have enough new infrastructure of any kind. We need to have that before we start retiring old infrastructure. But what you're really saying in more than anything else is that the agenda that, that, that reduces these, these permitting process timelines is very pro um, climate change. I mean, because it's for the benefit of the cleaner energy. Uh, isn't that right? I mean, isn't, isn't, it seems to me your allies should be the Biden administration on this because they, you know, John Kerry wants, wants what you want, which is more efficient delivery of energy that allows the cleaner energy sources to be transmitted just like oil and gas can be transmitted. Am I right about that or do I have that wrong? Absolutely. If we're ever going to have a clean energy system and retire the old, dirtier energy system, we're going to have to build a lot of new infrastructure first. And no one has proven that we can build that new infrastructure. Uh, with that said, as I said, there is you know another side to the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration is very conflicted on this. There's the side of them you know that says, no, we just want more environmental review. 
we want. That's just sort of the other side, though, is kind of it's not the climate side. It's not the 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 anti-climate side. Size. It's the sort of traditional democratic tendency to slow everything down and add regulation and government oversight over everything for old environmental concerns like aesthetics or water and, and air. Is that what you mean? Uh, well, as somebody who talks to people a lot of the time who are climate activists and concerned about that, remember that there is a side of the climate movement. And again, this is sort of the extreme yeah. left of the, of the Biden administration, but that uh, doesn't want any more energy because they don't want any more growth. They want us to radically reduce yeah, yeah, our, yeah, yeah. our It our makes it even more irrational. Yes, I right. well, I mean, yeah. remember, I mean, I mean, you remember the, you know, how dare you, right, from uh, uh, Greta Thunberg, right? What, what, remember what she was saying there? She was like saying, how dare you have, suggest that the world can continue to have economic growth? That was the how dare you, right? Yeah. And so, and there is, that is a very strong component of the democratic base, you know, these are people that go door to door, that raise money, etc. And so, you know, it's hard for the Biden administration to tell them, nope, sorry, we're having more energy. But it's so, uh, I mean, I come from the area of helping, you know, this is why Steve Coonan is so good on these issues too, is that kind of attitude is extremely damaging to the lowest income Americans and the poorest people around the world. I mean, if you get cut off growth, then you may make the climate not even noticeably yeah. better, uh, but you'll be really harming really vulnerable people. Um, well, I, I completely agree. And, and I guess the main thing I would say is when you see economic stagnation and even worse, economic collapse, have you seen, you know, historically benefits to the environment? In my, you know, in yeah. my rate of history, the answer is absolutely no. Yeah. So, no, I, I strongly disagree. But let me tell you, those views are very strongly rec- uh, represented mm-hmm. in academic communities, et cetera. I've given, you know, I've given lots of presentations to academic audiences where I said, well, you know, this might cause a collapse in trade and people say, well, that's great. So it's not an uncommon position. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Anything more, Phoebe, that we no, didn't talk? No, this has been really interesting. Thank, Thank you. you, James, a lot. We really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.